0: Welcome to another Love from the Hip. I'm spiritual hypnotherapist, intuitive medium, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. I created the show with the intention of empowering others to help and love themselves. Aside from weekly skin tips, you will hear me spotlight extraordinary souls from around the world who are making a difference by helping people in their own way. Together, we can all make a difference, and it starts with love. Love from the Hip. To protect and to serve has become the official motto adopted by many police departments after L.A. adopted it in 1955. Police officers are sworn in under oath to support the Constitution of the United States, their state, and the laws of their agency's jurisdiction. Sworn law enforcement also have the responsibility to ensure the safety and quality of life of the communities they serve. Policing is said to include maintaining public order and safety, enforcing the law and preventing, detecting, and investigating criminal activities. Throughout the years, however, it has extended to marriage counseling and social work, teaching the youth, rescuing pets, midwifery, medical responder, and keeper of the peace. These men and women typically meet people when they are at their worst and in a time of great crises. They have become familiar with all of the derogatory terms and disrespect. They are spat on, have rocks thrown at them, are called names like pigs, and are shot at on a regular basis. Police officers understand that they either bring comfort or discomfort to a situation, depending on who is on the receiving end. And as with any agency, there are those few who misfit the uniform and are corrupt, alongside the many who go beyond what is expected of them regardless of the heavy risks involved. Behind the badge are people like us. They, too, have feelings, are mortal, vulnerable, and not free from the trauma they are exposed to on the job. Many of their instant decisions are based on life or death. But unlike most people, the minute they put on their uniform, they immediately put their lives on the line. Every day they say goodbye to their families, and every time they run to a call, it could indeed be their last. Just as the job description and duties change for other jobs, the rules of law enforcement do too, but are extremely dependent upon an ever-changing society. This was evident during the COVID-19 pandemic as their role varied significantly due to the widely different measures states and localities took in response to the pandemic. For example, the state like New York required strict enforcement of masks, business closures, and prohibited gatherings Officers were then required to enforce such measures, whereas if there wasn't strict mandates, like in the case of Florida, then police were not involved in managing public risk at all. The pandemic also changed a lot of the service demand. While there was a decrease in home robberies due to people having to stay at home, there was a significant increase in violent crimes, including homicides. Domestic and family abuse peaked as stay-at-home orders were implemented And fraud targeting the elderly and children, as well as hate crimes targeting specific races, increased as well. Due to the shutdown of many of the state's social service agencies, more police officers were required to respond to mental health emergencies, which sadly saw a significant increase during the pandemic. Not to mention, police had to deal with the social turmoil caused by COVID and its response becoming overly politicized. Then in May of 2020, with the death of George Floyd, a revolt was triggered causing widespread protests and violence in our country. As a result, the slogan defund the police gained momentum and there was a push to cut funding from law enforcement agencies in hopes to reallocate funding to non-criminal justice approaches dealing with violence and other societal problems. Although unbeknownst to many, Funding was being cut from areas law enforcement needed it most, like mental health programs and counseling. In addition, police were further scrutinized for their policing practices, especially during protests, which made their jobs even harder to perform. Trust between law enforcement agencies and the public seemed to have disappeared, and the crimes only increased and became more heinous. Police officers became too afraid to do their jobs for fear of more scrutiny, and the public started to believe they could either take the law into their own hands or that there would be more peace without it. Seattle's CHAZ, or Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, later changed to CHOP, or Capitol Hill Organized Protest, is a great example of this failed social ideology or experiment. Activists who called for the abolishment of police set up their own makeshift precinct with graffiti, chalk, and cement barricades, carving out their own section of the city. It lured people from all over Seattle and its surrounding areas with the concept of free, from free water, free food, free music, to free expression, but mainly it boasted freedom from the police. Although it didn't take long for nighttime chop to soon reveal that violence grows where law is not. On July 1st, former Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin finally shut CHOP down after four shootings, arson, and several alleged sexual assaults. The Seattle Times reported in February of this year that violent crime in Seattle hit a 15-year high. This spike began in 2020. Gun violence is up. Motor theft is up. In fact, data reveals that the overall crime rate is 134% higher than the national average. This comes as no surprise, as the SPD or Seattle Police Department reported a 30-year low in officers for 2022. 400 police officers either resigned or retired from 2020 to 2022. As of 2022, there are 954 trained and deployable officers, in a city that has almost doubled its size in the last 30 years, which also means response times have increased. In hopes of addressing the staffing crises, Seattle, as well as other major cities, are now offering up cash incentives for new hires, while crimes only continue to increase and become more violent. Law enforcement is rooted in trust with its citizens. If there isn't any more trust, How can we expect people to take this job, let alone pin a price tag on it? So the question remains, how do we get off this sinking ship when we chose to scuttle it? Today on Love From the Hip, it is my esteemed pleasure to have Roger Ruge back for another conversation. Roger is a retired police officer and author. He will share some firsthand knowledge of the state of our police agencies and police morale what the bleak future might look like if we private citizens don't step up, and so much more. You won't want to miss this one, so don't go anywhere.
1: The passing of our loved ones always proves to be very challenging, but can be met with ease when working with someone who can hold space, com.
2: Has your life been interrupted? Has the carpet been pulled out from under you? Have you had to pivot, start something new, start over from scratch, or create something completely new? You're not alone. Come hear stories of others just like you. It's a brand new podcast called Interrupted, Act 2, Reinventing Your Legacy with Coach Lori on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Do you wonder why you repeat behaviors that don't serve you? Do you struggle with self-love? Are you intimidated by situations where you want to stand up for yourself but can't? If any of those resonate with you, you may be living someone else's story. This can lead to dysfunctional relationships, emotional shutdowns, and regrets. Every part of your life may be a reflection of someone else's story. It's time to live your life. In 2005, spiritual life coach Jeanette Dames realized she was living other people's stories. She recreated her life to live her story and love, joy, peace, health, and prosperity showed up. From this deep transformation, Jeanette has developed a six-week coaching program to help you create your life your way. She can help you make it a dazzling reality. It's time to let go of what you absorbed from others and create the life you want. Visit riverangelranch.com for more information. That's
0: r-i-v-e-r-a-n-g-e-l-r-a-n-c-h.com. Welcome back to Love from the Hip. I'm intuitive medium, spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe and share my podcast, Love from the Hip, that's H-Y-P, anywhere you can find podcasts. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming back Roger Ruge. Roger is a retired police officer and an author. Hey, Roger, thanks for joining us again
3: today. Hey, it is an honor to be on your show, not once, but twice. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So, Roger, how long were you a police officer?
3: Uh, I was able to serve for 20 years, and that was as directly a police officer. And then I've been a police master instructor for 30 years.
0: Wow. Now, what department did you specifically serve with?
3: Santa Rosa, California. And to give you guests a reference, that's about 60 miles north of San Francisco.
0: Okay, now I have to ask you, what made you want to become a police officer?
3: You know, I uh, experienced a lot of bullying as a kid, I was in the San Francisco Unified School District, which was pretty tough uh, back in the day. Yeah. And so um, over the years, I decided that I was tired of being picked on and tired of being bullied. And so I started to train in the martial arts. I started to condition my body. And when I came into my strength and power, bullies left me alone. And I thought, well, I think I would like to dedicate my life to helping others who can't protect themselves. So that was my true incentive to become a police officer.
0: Be in service to others. It wasn't the money that lured you.
3: Oh, definitely not.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you shared this on our prior interview. But could you please tell my listeners, did you end up suffering from PTSD from the job?
3: I did. I had a, a particular event that it was a traffic accident with multiple fatalities. And when I looked in the back of the one car that had received the worst damage I was trying to help as best I could, I saw my daughters in the back of that car. Mm. And of course, I stepped back and and my logical reasoning centers went wait a minute I don't know these this car there should be home at this time and I shook my head side to side and looked back in and it wasn't my daughters it was two children who were the same ages but my mind had projected my deepest fear which was that was actually them right and you know interestingly Sakura, I didn't experience post-traumatic stress at that moment in time But slowly, I began to de-evolve. And over the course of five years, I was suicidal every single day, but not in a way you'd expect. I was not following policy anymore. I was rushing into danger, hoping to go out in a blaze of glory. And my department recognized this and gave me awards and commendations for being super cop. Mm. It wasn't until I was in a legal deposition on that accident five years later, and they showed me the photographs, and I have this team of 18 attorneys all looking at me representing the various clients, and I flashed back. Right there, I left the building in my mind. I relived the entire event, and when I came back to present time, I was crying, Mm. and there were about 18 attorneys in various states of shock going, what's wrong with this guy? And I knew at that point I really needed help.
0: And what sort of help did you get?
3: Well, I went and did talk therapy, Mm -hmm. but that wasn't getting it done. And so my psychologist, psychotherapist actually recommended that I try something that was experimental. It was brand new and it just so happened one of the doctors who was a pioneer in this lived in our city and so they said do you want to try and i said absolutely i've got nothing to lose so i was one of the first people in the country to experience emdr Mm -hmm. and emdr is a special form of eye movement desensitization and reprogramming where i realized through that modality that i didn't fail in that event i actually succeeded and it reframed the truth Yeah. But what was shocking was that once we worked our way through that one, six more trauma events suddenly emerged from my psyche. And I had no idea they were there. They were just dormant waiting to be awakened. And they came out one after the other after the other. And I, I really had no idea I was storing all of that inside me.
0: That's pretty amazing. I mean, I the fact that our mind does that, and if you think about it, right, every officer, you're witnessing, witnessing so much trauma that you're storing it is essentially what you were doing.
3: Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I've heard a, a statistic that says, in effect, the average human being will experience one to two events in their lifetime that rises to the level of a trauma experience. Mm-hmm. A first responder, firefighter, police officer, emergency medical technician, emergency room doctors and nurses, over the course of 20 to 30 years, will experience 500 to 800 trauma level events. I don't know how anyone without real intervention and really strong resilience practices can arrive at the end of that journey not being damaged.
0: Right, you're real people, you have real feelings. So I have to ask you, Was was the help available at the time when you sought it out?
3: It was, uh, it was the three traditional programs that we typically find. So we've got talk therapy with a hopefully culturally competent psychologist, because that's very important that they understand the culture. Yeah, we also have peer support, peer support, meaning that I can talk to a specially trained colleague about the things that I might be going through. And then chaplaincy programs Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, a non-denominational chaplain will be there. The problem with those is there is still, even to this day, a massive stigma in admitting that we need help. And back then, you could get six anonymous visits to the Employee Assistance Program. Mm -hmm. And after that, you had to get permission to have more. Yeah. Well, the problem with that was it was career suicide at that point to out yourself. I decided to do it and my career did suffer, but I got my life back, so I didn't care.
0: Wow. Yeah. My my cousin who served for Chicago PD for almost 20 years, he died last year of a heart attack. God rest his soul. But he had said to me his frustration was there was so much mental, (laughs) mental illness going around, but nobody could ask for help. You were either, like you said, outed or you could possibly lose your job.
3: That's correct. And there is a solution and we're just unwilling to do it. But the solution is it must become culturally adopted. Mm -hmm. Day one of your hire, you go to a neurologist and get a brain scan. You find out what's working, what isn't working. You tune that up, you get the brain functioning correctly. And then twice a year you have a mental health checkup and you do another brain scan to determine has the trauma you've experienced shut down certain brain centers that are going to contribute to the production of post-traumatic stress disorder Mm -hmm. if we did that one simple thing and we made it culturally non-negotiable you get a checkup twice a year, just like you go see the dentist to keep your teeth from all falling out Exactly. Of your uh-huh. I believe in one generation, we could really make a dent in all of the problems that are associated with these mental health issues.
0: I love that. Now I have to ask you, what was your involvement with law enforcement right before the pandemic started?
3: So I am a California master instructor for law enforcement and I developed a wellness program for all of California law enforcement. And so over the years, I've evolved that into mindfulness and resilience training, teaching officers how to become peaceful warriors. Mm -hmm. In other words, not reactive to their environment, but responsive to their environment. And so right before the pandemic, I was uh, doing a grant in California, training officers in that, and I was live in a classroom. And then of course the pandemic hit and we took that virtual. But that was the the impetus of what I was doing. California was evolving into a more aggressive style of wellness training, Mm -hmm. trying to make a cultural adaptation to this as a concept rather than just an idea.
0: Right. That's wonderful. And what was some of the responses that you were getting from the officers you were working with?
3: Life-altering. I wish I had this from the first day I started the job. I had no idea these were the effects that were going to happen to me. No one prepared me for what I was going to face Mm. in terms of mental health and mental health preparedness. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, you know, throwing a lifesaver out there. Yeah,
0: and was there also a very strong sense of relief from a lot of these officers? Like, definitely.
3: Definitely, because they realize, first of all, here I am, I've been there, I've done that, and I've evolved enough to be able to share from non-traditional aspects and make it safe. So for example, oh, you mean meditation doesn't mean I'm going to be a hippie dope smoking liberal granola cruncher? (laughs) I mean, I'm just playful here, but you know, the officers have a lot of stigma around things that are non-traditional. Right. I was able to bring those in and show them how warrior cultures the most advanced on the planet that we've known for thousands of years, utilize these concepts to balance body, mind, and spirit. Yeah. So I was able to introduce it in a way that made it safe to explore.
0: Mm-hmm. And kept it also more masculine for some of those officers. Definitely. So then what happened to your programs as the pandemic started to move through?
3: Yeah, you know, as the pandemic progressed, and we had the tragic incident with Mr. Floyd, defunding, reallocation, and staffing shortages, officers resigning in mass amounts and very few people wanting to come in to the profession, decimated it to the point where I can no longer put on any training anywhere at this point, I'm completely out of business.
0: And how long did they give you that you would be out of business, did they say?
3: Well, the best case scenario I've heard so far, which I think is overly optimistic, is five years.
0: Wow. Now, after they pulled your programs, was there anything else put in place to support these officers?
3: So some agencies um, have a governing body in their state. And it's typically called POST, Peace Officer Standards and Training. And so in California, there's California POST. And many states have something like that. So many of them have done things like roll call training. And basically what you're looking at are video vignettes Mm. that give them some information. There's also some apps available from companies like Cortica, where you have now a wellness app those are fine but i have to be honest it's sort of like putting a band-aid on a gunshot wound Mm -hmm. and it's not really creating the behavioral change we're looking for
0: right so Mm -hmm. how did you pivot then
3: well i really meditated on this akira because you know i was thinking to myself wow my career is is probably over at this stage of my life Mm -hmm. i may have had the final blow here how can I continue to serve? And so in the last couple of years, I wrote three books that put the bulk of my material out there. And I partnered with a psychologist, Dr. Renee Thornton, who is a former Navy rescue swimmer and psychologist. Awesome. And she and I wrote two books, Navigating Adversity and Keeping It All Together. Navigating Adversity is a workbook that takes you through the eight pillars of wellness and keeping it all together is designed for their family members, Mm. so that the whole family can also integrate into the practices. So the best of the best is out there in those books. And then I wrote a devotional with another guy named Joe Courtmunch called Reasoned Resiliency, where you get a daily inspiration and some questions to ponder 365 days of just helping you to explore the depths of how you can take an empowered step on your own. Because as the systems begin to collapse, I realized, Sakura, that the best thing I could do would be to empower the individual.
0: Yeah. And to make them feel like they have purpose. I love that you were still you pivoted to still be in service. That's so definitely big of you. I love that. So let's talk about the state of our law enforcement and our agencies right now. Is there a staffing crisis across our country? And where is it the worst? And why?
3: I love the question. I'm going to use an example of Wichita, Kansas, because I think Wichita really highlights what's going on on a broad spectrum. So we'll take a look at this micro example, but you can extrapolate this. And basically, the bigger the city, the worse the problem as a general rule. Mm -hmm. So in Wichita, their sheriff's department is pretty challenged. And that's because of the fentanyl crisis hitting the Midwest. So it's a very, very violent community. It's got a lot going on. Yeah. Wichita has suffered a 50% reduction in personnel. And so what that translates to is officers are now working six and seven days a week, 12 hour shifts with no end in sight. To get a deputy fully trained from the day of hire to their working on their own. So that includes the background investigations, the academy training, the 18 month probationary period. Now they're functioning as a full solo deputy is a two year process. Mm. It also costs a quarter of a million dollars per deputy to get them to that two year mark. Now, would that be a problem if we had people beating down the doors to try to come into law enforcement? Okay, yeah, maybe we could get there in two years, but that is not the case. Very few people want to be a part of the job, and for good reason. Think about all the vitriol that is going against that profession right now. It's not real sexy. It doesn't make a lot of money, and everybody's kind of against them right now. Mm -hmm. So that's created a perfect storm, and I think you can just really just overlay that throughout the country. In fact, Washington State has been impacted by this dramatically.
0: Right. Absolutely. So would you say then this whole process, it seems like we're refunding the police now. Is, is, that, yeah. is that working? So,
3: <laughs> when we when we defunded, you know, we we did it with the idea of let's take away this money from this oppressive system. right? but they did that without replacing or putting in the infrastructure to pick up what was going to drop off Mm. from cutting those services so we did a cart before horse kind of thing you know for example police officers should not be the primary person on a mental health call for service a mental health professional should be right exactly well okay but it's still a policing problem and so you take away the funding now the officers can't respond to that and we don't have anyone who can Mm -hmm. so it exacerbated a lot of existing social issues and then they realized my goodness homicide rates are up crime rates are up calls for service are up our ability to respond is down whoops and so now some areas are like austin texas is a great example they're aggressively refunding because they did put cart before horse it was a reaction and if it had been thoughtfully you know done I want to say something that your listeners may not believe mm-hmm. police officers and the people who are not happy with police officers are in agreement they actually want the same thing right a police officer doesn't want to respond to a mental health crisis A highly trained mental health person should be responding to that. The truth is both groups actually want very similar goals. Mm -hmm. So how about instead of defunding, we do a reallocation of resources and build up the social issues that we need support in and take that away from policing where it never belonged in the first place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, how is this affecting the shortage affecting other first responders like firefighters and EMR?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's something nobody really thinks about. So imagine that you have a staffing shortage and imagine that you now have delayed response times, which is true in many jurisdictions now due to that staffing shortage. Well, what does that mean? Let's say there's a medical aid situation and a need for law enforcement. Fire services, EMS services, will have to do something called staging. So they're going to stage prior to getting to the scene. They'll be nearby, but they won't go in until a law enforcement professional can go in, assess it, and say, OK, firefighter, paramedic, it is now safe for you to come in. Right. We delay that time. They can't get in. And now, when seconds matter, you know, we're going to lose lives as a result of that. The other thing that can happen is maybe the EMS professionals say, we're going in anyway.
0: Mm.
3: Well, Now they're exposing themselves to potential danger in a very volatile situation. So no matter how you slice that one, it doesn't turn out well.
0: Yeah, especially being unarmed. So Mm -hmm. how has the job changed? Can officers still perform the same duties they were prior to the pandemic?
3: I'm in a really unique position. So because I don't have a dog in the fight anymore, and because I train at a very high level, I get to hear what the line really thinks. I don't get to hear the sound bites or the smiley face they put on as they talk to their sergeant or lieutenant and tell them everything's just fine, boss. Mm -hmm. What I hear is the raw truth. And how it has affected the job is something your listeners should really understand. Now, many officers simply won't admit to this, but I'm telling you that this is a sampling from across the country. I hear the same thing over and over. And it's this. We are no longer doing proactive policing. What is proactive policing? It means I'm on patrol in your neighborhood and I'm looking for problems before they happen. So if I self-initiate an activity where I have not been called to the area, that is when I am most likely to get in trouble because I self-initiated an activity, a traffic stop on a car. Mm. And maybe that's somebody who has a strong voice in the community and all of a sudden everybody's spotlight is on me. The next question to ask is, well, then, are you going to real calls for service and how are you dealing with those? You go, well, somebody wants us there, so we go to those, but we go with the lights and siren on and drive at the speed limit, hoping everybody's gone by the time we get there, so we don't have to deal with yet another crisis or controversy that hits the papers.
0: Mm.
3: Well, why are you doing that? Well, no one's got our back. As they say in law enforcement, no one has my six, my back, right? What do you mean by that? Well, the administration just serves the city councils and county councils, and they're after us. They're always looking for us to do something wrong. The media is after us constantly. They're always looking for something to stir up the controversy. The public doesn't like us anymore. No one has our six. Oh, so you're basically not doing policing. Right. Just trying to make it to my next paycheck. Okay. Now, if this was a one off, I wouldn't be concerned. But I hear it from people all over the country and I hear it essentially just like I expressed it to you. They don't feel supported.
0: Right. And at the same time, the crimes have become more heinous. Can you speak to that as well?
3: Yeah, we have seen a really significant uptake in virtually every category of crime, but especially in violent crime as we become a more divided society. There's less peacekeepers out there. And then in some areas, the district attorneys and the city councils, county councils have said, we're simply not going to arrest for these crimes anymore.
0: Mm.
3: Uh, So the officer's like, well, why am I even here?
0: Right. Exactly. What am
3: I doing? Mm -hmm. And so those policies, they have this unintended consequence of really fortifying someone who's already leaning toward crime to be emboldened, to go out there and do it. If there's no consequence, why should I worry about it? And they test it a little and they test it a little more. And then the video goes viral and all of a sudden it's a free for all. Mm. And of course, you know, you've seen it directly in your state. And yeah, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy and it's terrible.
0: Yeah. So what do you foresee happening if we continue on this path?
3: Oh, I flipped that question right to you. What do you think is going to happen?
0: I, I don't see it getting any better.
3: Correct. I think we de-evolve to a point where people finally say enough. And then we try to reverse engineer. The problem is you are reverse engineering on a foundation that you've been chipping away at for years. Mm. How do you build on something so shaky?
0: Right.
3: It's going to take years. If we were to turn it over right now, boom, flip it, we're back. Nope, it's going to be years.
0: So how can we private citizens get involved? What can we do?
3: I really like this question, of course.
0: Yeah,
3: (laughs) first and foremost. Have a little empathy and compassion for those out there that are still doing the job. And if you can offer them just a simple, hey, thank you so much really appreciate you officer is there anything you need from us I just went into a community meeting in my current community which is Lafayette Colorado cute little town Mm. and the Chief once a month has something called coffee with the Chief and you can just sit down with the Chief and have a conversation so I attended and of course a lot of people in there were complaining about this that and the other thing and it got to me and I said Chief I'm curious about something what do you need from us in the community And he looked at me he had a moment of like shock who asks that question (laughs) yeah and that's the point that's the point go down and maybe think about volunteering Mm. at your local police agency ask them what they need do they need financial support to get a new piece of equipment that would help them out and could you rally the rotary club to do that how can you go support them in the shortcomings that they have could you start a neighborhood watch program yeah. and take some of the pressure off of the patrol issues that are happening because of staffing shortages? That's one thing we can do. We can go and actually ask, what do you need? And then try to do our best to support it. But if you can't do anything else, just thank them.
0: Yeah. Just love thank that. them
3: and let them know you appreciate.
0: Absolutely. The second
3: thing we can do is take a really close look at your elected leaders. And if their policies are not supportive of the policing you would like to see in your community, then consider getting politically active and electing someone who's more in alignment with what you would like to see in your community. We have that power still in this country, and it may be the most power we can wield in terms of political activism on the other side of the fence in support of the law enforcement first responder community.
0: I love that. So Roger, I have to ask you, what do you hope then for the future of your fellow brothers and sisters?
3: When I see the de evolution and dismantling of existing structures, it saddens me. And it also excites me. And the reason it excites me is, sometimes we have to break things down to build something even more beautiful than it was before. You pointed out at the beginning of the show that there are a few people Who can bring down an entire structure they are truly a minority of people they do not represent the majority in law enforcement and i'm talking high 90th percentile Mm. who are there to serve the public and risk their life every single day for strangers that is the bulk of who's out there we can't let those few individuals take down the entire industry so I get excited because as we get better and better at hiring practices, vetting people, doing things that we need to do to remove these bad apples, we have the beautiful possibility now of creating something even better than it was before.
0: I love that. I love your optimism. Thank you, Roger, for being here today. And how can my listeners learn more about you and your books?
3: I think the best thing they can do is go to Amazon. And just go to my author page by typing in my name. Roger has a D in it that messes everybody up, R-O-D-G-E-R. The last name is R-U-G-E. And that would be the greatest support you could give to the first responder community. Buy a couple of books. Take it down to your local department. Give it to a first responder that you know. I wrote it for all first responders. It is not law enforcement specific. That's how you can help. And, and that's how you can continue to serve your community and me.
0: Love that. I appreciate you. Thank you for the work that you do.
3: I appreciate you and what you do in community, Sakura. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And just remember, we're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned for the weekly Skinny Up next. And when we return, you will hear from public safety chaplain Ron Perkins in Florida and what he has to add about law enforcement and first responders. So don't go anywhere. On this Weekly Skinny, I would like to talk about a new trend in tattooing, and it is made-to-fade tattoos. These are real tattoos that fade away in one to three years. In fact, there is no laser removal required. The Brooklyn-based tattoo company, Ephemeral Tattoo, was founded by five New York University friends who grew up in households where tattoos were strictly taboo. It officially launched in 2021 after six years devoted to research and testing to create safe ink. Ephemeral ink is the first tattoo ink designed to naturally fade over time. Unlike traditional tattoo ink, ephemeral tattoos are said to be made from vegan, non-metallic ink that is FDA tested and approved for medical use and biocompatibility. However, don't be deceived, they still hurt just as much as permanent tattoos. Their tattoos are said to be all-inclusive, have no hidden fees, with simple flat rates. Appointments are made on their website at ephemeral.tattoo, in any of their studios located in New York, DC, Chicago, Miami, LA, San Francisco, Houston, and Atlanta. There are three different types of tattoos available, the subtle, the standout, and the statement. The subtle costs $195 for one hour. It is considered small and simple with no shading and is up to two square inches. The standout is considered a medium-sized tattoo up to nine square inches and includes detail with light shading. It costs $250 for two hours. And the statement, which is three plus hours, is large and can be up to 25 square inches. This one costs $450. According to its makers, when Ephemeral Tattoo was founded, their goal was to create a product that would enable limitless self-expression, a tattoo that empowered people to be creative, to embrace their identity in the moment, and to just have fun without the lifetime commitment of it. They never expected their tattoos to extend beyond their studios, but due to the overwhelming requests from radiotherapy providers, patients, and their loved ones, they have since partnered with the Henry Ford Health System. In addition, Ephemeral Tattoo stands by the Regret Nothing Guarantee, which means they guarantee that the tattoo will last at least one year and no more than three, or you get your money back. Plus, they offer free touch-ups within 60 days of your appointment. 2024 will mark three years since its launch day, and while it has been tested prior, at the popular rate that it has been trending, we will definitely be able to see just how long the ink really does last. Welcome back to Left from the Hip. I'm intuitive medium, spiritual hypnotherapist, master esthetician, and your host, Sakura Sutter. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with public safety chaplain Ron Perkins. And how long have you been a public safety chaplain?
4: About 14 years.
0: Okay. And what is it that you would say you do as a public safety chaplain?
4: Well, I'm I'm a full-time public safety chaplain. So, so my full-time uh, focus is on the emotional and spiritual health of firefighters and law enforcement officers in the five departments that I serve here in Broward County.
0: Now, in the 14 years of your experience, have you noticed a change when it, in regards to our law enforcement and also our first responders?
4: Yeah, I've certainly noticed a, a big change in their openness to accept help and support, in dealing with the stresses of the job. Uh, It's still a a career that um, has stigma associated with behavioral health intervention, but as we have gone through the years, particularly in this area of Florida, there has been a great um, uh, surge in availability of behavioral health access programs particularly starting here in Broward County, and now it's essentially a standard of care throughout the state of Florida as it relates to fire service and becoming much, much more available for our law enforcement community as well.
0: So aside from not being readily available these programs, do you also believe there's still some sort of backlash or um, outing, if you will, if you ask for help?
4: I think that exists in some departments more than others. I think it exists in the minds still of most of our first responders. And if you sit around the the kitchen table in a firehouse, you're doing some you know, ride-alongs and you're talking to to police officers and deputies and so forth, you'll still hear that concern about, well, if I come out and say I'm going to see a therapist or I need to talk to a chaplain or uh, reach out to peer support that I could be in danger of. Uh, Losing my job or being thought less highly of by my bosses and my peers. But again, I think as as we provide the services and do the education that's necessary, I think that is lessening in the minds of many of our our police officers and firefighters.
0: Now, do you think that the departments actually have enough funds to allocate for the proper programs for mental health and wellness?
4: Public safety departments that never have enough funds for everything they need to do. That, that's kind of a basic assumption in, in public safety, that there are always things you can do better and more uh, with more resources. But what what I'm finding, again, and it varies throughout the country and, and, frankly, it even varies within Broward County and the state of Florida in terms of the amount of resources that agencies are willing to invest uh, much of our behavioral health programming is either voluntary or very low cost. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happen to be in a situation where I, I was able to start a nonprofit organization to fund what it is that, that I do in terms of chaplaincy with the law enforcement agencies and fire departments I work with. But many of the departments here in Broward County have invested in behavioral health access programs as as truly the modern um, answer to the behavioral health problems that leaders see within fire service and law enforcement remember that our our police officers and firefighters are exposed daily every shift that they work they're exposed to terrible things that they see hear, and smell that they can't just get off their minds right so there's got to be a healthier way to process that and cope with those stresses. <clears throat> and what we have found here, by building a, a comprehensive model where we integrate the basic four legs, if you will, to the School of Behavioral Health, which are our chaplaincy, which is what I focus on, peer support, which are specially trained police officers and firefighters uh, that have additional training and sensitivity and Confidential protections, if you will, to be able to intervene and talk with their peers, uh, coupled with professional clinicians, uh, mental health therapists, and the like, and then what we call critical
0: incident stress management response teams. Those mm-hmm. are kind of the four legs of our
4: approach to modern behavioral health access programs related to public safety.
0: That's wonderful. And, now, would you would you say that that may be also limited nationwide? to other
4: departments? Yeah, I I think it is, it is getting more readily accepted and uh, put into more departments. But I would say, if you look at it on a national basis, it is nowhere near as um, prevalent in our public safety agencies as frankly, it needs to be. And if you look at you look at the national organizations, whether they be labor organizations, like the Fraternal Order of Police, or the International Association of Firefighters, or on the uh, the management side, the International Association of Fire Chiefs and the, the um, International Police Chiefs Associations, you'll see a whole lot more attention being given nationally to how do we improve the mental health of our first responders.
2: Mm-hmm. Over the years, we have focused on the physical safety issues. Do we have the right... Um, Protective equipment. Do we have the right bunker gear and
4: helmets and ballistic vests uh, for our police officers and so forth? And, and now they're beginning to say, "Well, we, we've done all this, and we're worried about cancer prevention on the fireside, but what about the behavioral health aspects?" And it's a fact that we lose more police officers and firefighters to their own hand to death by suicide mm. on an, than we do through line of duty deaths. So how are we going to attack that and save the lives of these men and women that are continually exposed to the the stresses of their jobs and therefore we get into the behavioral health access programming and approaching behavioral and spiritual mental health, the same way we do about physical, personal protection equipment.
0: Right, absolutely. And then at the same time, would you agree that what they are witnessing has also gotten a lot more gruesome.
4: Oh, <laughs> a lot more gruesome, uh, certainly the, the, the active shooter situation today. I mean, uh, unfortunately I was on the ground at uh, Marjorie Stolman Douglas and at the airport shooting here in Fort Lauderdale the, the year before. Mm. And so I've seen what, what these men and women experience in that situation and the stress is just, it's off the chart. And you can't go a 24 hour period without somewhere in the United States having that kind of a situation being repeated, coupled with um, on the, the law enforcement side, particularly the stresses and strains that have been caused by many of the um, uh, racially motivated, if you will, situations that have gone on within law enforcement and the concerns about um, law enforcement um, uh, issues. So yeah, it's harder to be a police officer today than it was 15 years ago it's much more dangerous to be a firefighter today than it was 15 years ago.
0: And so what is your hope for our first responders in law enforcement?
4: Well, my hope and my prayer is that they're working for an agency that cares as much about their emotional, spiritual, and mental health as they do their physical safety. And I would hope that through our labor organizations, the the unions and so forth that represent these professionals, that they're able to um, uh, activate uh, those kinds of uh, organizations and response uh, capabilities within within their departments their national their national associations are being very supportive of that and I would learn from that and really push for it when they when they start negotiating contract renewals and things like that to be sure that that um, their agencies are responding in an appropriate way to the uh, the behavioral and and mental health side of um, the safety concerns
0: okay and lastly i want to ask you how can we the public help
4: that's a good question i, I think there's several things that we can do as as private citizens one is advocate for positive behavioral health access programs within our community through our elected leaders our city managers um, and the chiefs of our, our various departments make it known that we as citizens care about The health and welfare of the people that protect us every day our our police officers and our firefighters uh, run towards the they run towards the the shooting they run towards the danger towards the flames well we're all running away from them and we need to do our part as private citizens to help protect them
0: I love that. Well, thank you for what it is that you do do. I understand the toughness for yourself. Is there anything that you do to help mitigate the stress or diffuse any of the trauma that you you witness?
4: Oh, that's a good. I, I appreciate that question. I'm, I'm getting that more and more from my firefighters and police officers after I ask them how they are. They say, well, how are you doing, chaps? What are you doing to take care of yourself? And, um our, our two uh, organizations, the Federation of Fire Chaplains and the International Conference of Police Chaplains have really made that a focus of their training to us from a continuing education about self-care. Personally, um, I see th- I talk to a therapist every two weeks. Mm. Um, I Like the other folks that were exposed to the, the Marjory Stroman Douglas shooting, um, I had negative consequences from it and realized uh, that my behavior had changed, and I have a very perceptive wife. And she she approached me after that and said, "Well, if you were if you saw a police
2: officer or firefighter behaving the way you're behaving at home, what would you tell them to do?" Mm-hmm. And
4: I would say, "We get to a therapist." And she said, "You got three or four in your phone call." That's <laughs> <laughs> you know, been five years now. Yeah. So uh, I, I I see a professional. I have a group of fellow chaplains that are in police and fire chaplaincy that I talk to on a regular basis and I, I try to carve out time every day not only for prayer and you know my spiritual growth but also time to read and to relax and just be time. yeah and I think importantly as care as care providers that we do take care of ourselves practice what we preach so to speak
0: I love that Well, thank you so much for taking this time to share all of what you know, (laughs) which is a lot. I really appreciate it. I'm
4: really happy to to participate in this, and I'm, I'm happy to answer any questions you or your listeners have in the future.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks again to Roger and Ron. I also want to dedicate this show to my cousin, Johnny McKenna of the Chicago PD. You are missed. You are loved. And thank you for having kept us safe for so many years. I also want to thank Eric, my fantastic producer, you, the listener, KKNW, and Cape Town Zone Radio. You can find me at sakurasetter.com and tune in next Wednesday for another episode of Love from the Hip. Stay kind out there. Stay true to you. And don't forget, make self-love contagious. Go ahead. I dare ya.